With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello and welcome to the Transfer Window, the podcast that brings you the news before it becomes news, as well as insight and analysis into all the subjects you're talking about in football. I mean, McGarry, uh, with me as always is a man who knows more about transfers than the Bank of England, Duncan Castles. Today's pod is going to be something or somewhat of a manager's special. Big, big news coming up on Spurs, Manchester United, and Arsenal. Duncan, we're going to start with Tottenham Hotspur, a club who obviously were thrown into chaos with the sacking of Jose Mourinho, and before that of Maurizio Pochettino. They didn't get their first choice and kind of ended up in a compromised situation with former Wolves head coach Nuno Espirito Santo, who has had a very, very difficult and disappointing start to the season. And you have news on Nuno and what his future might hold. Yeah, it didn't even get close to getting their first choice. This is something we um, detailed extensively at the time, the, the difficulties that Tottenham had securing a supposedly long-term replacement for Jose Mourinho. Attempts they made to hire Julian Nagelsmann, Antonio Conte, bring back Maurizio Pochettino, giving the job to Paolo Fonseca. Um which incidentally, a, a story that's been confirmed in an interview by Paolo Fonseca in the past week that he had agreed to do the job and had uh, a contract in place and uh, that Tottenham changed their mind following direct discussions with him. His version of events was that uh, uh, Fabio Paratici, the, the incoming managing director of football, wanted to play a more defensive style than, than he uh, would wanted to implement at Tottenham and they stepped away from that. They then got very close to hiring Gennaro Gattuso. That was um, aborted, uh, according to the response of the Tottenham fans, and eventually turned to Nuno Espirito Santo, who'd been offered to them earlier in the process and who, who they'd passed on earlier in the process. He said he's not had a good start. He actually started well in the Premier League in the, the, the first three matches. Um, were victories but since then it has gone wrong and gone quite spectacularly wrong they've lost three in a row three consecutive London derbies Crystal Palace Chelsea and Arsenal conceded three in every one of those games um, and I, I think the the most damaging one has been the, the Arsenal match where they were uh, well beaten before half time um, where you have Nuno coming out after the match uh, and cr criticising himself, saying that the game plan was not good, but also criticising the players in general 
you avoided naming individuals, but he did say the players were not able to do what I told them. When you have a game plan, you have to make the right decisions in terms of who you want in the pitch to develop that game plan. I won't name individuals who didn't play it right, but the game plan was not right according to the players on the pitch. Um, you have players talking about what went wrong, Lucas Moura, um, saying that uh, they gave Arsenal too much space, that they didn't play well, that they didn't try to play, that they didn't try to have the ball, that they were playing too many long balls. Um, quite strong criticisms of, of the uh, tactics being implemented unsuccessfully in that match. This goes alongside some grumblings that have been about for a while that um, that the, some of the players have not been impressed with Nuno as an individual, um, not particularly impressed by his an attitude or a personality that's described as being dour. Um, some complaining about the type of football they're being asked to play. Um, and also some criticisms from within the club that he doesn't understand the type of football that is expected for Tottenham. And, and I'm also hearing not doing enough work to promote the club, for example, and uh, getting involved with club media. So there, there has been discontent there. The information I have is that, that Tottenham are already considering replacements for Nuno. And also that um, this is not necessarily a unilateral process in the sense that Nuno, I'm told, is not happy with his circumstances at Tottenham. It's not what he expected when he came into the club. Um, so there's discontent on both sides there. I think a lot of this is predictable. Uh, and I, again, I'd, I'd say to our listeners, go back to what we were discussing about Tottenham when they were going through this tortured managerial process. Um, after Daniel Levy had kind of um, placed, his, well, not his own head on the chopping block, obviously, but placed himself in a, a delicate position by writing in the programme notes about what had gone wrong in the previous season and, and saying that... Um, he felt that they'd lost sight of some key priorities and what's truly in our DNA um, because they'd been focused on, on delivering the new stadium and dealing with the COVID pandemic. And then saying that, that we are acutely aware of the need to select someone whose values reflect those of our great club and return to playing football with the style for which we are known free-flowing, attacking and entertaining while continuing to embrace our desire to see young players flourish from the academy alongside experienced talent. Now, clearly, Nuno was not first choice, not even close to it, but he also was not the photo fit for that kind of appointment, like the, the way that, that Levy had sold the job. So I think you have a scenario here where they brought someone in that not probably no one was ever convinced was the right appointment for the job um, from, that, from that perspective of what Tottenham were looking for in a manager um, into a very difficult circumstance because the reason they're looking for a manager is because they'd sacked two of um, the top coaches in, in world football, certainly two individuals regarded as being two of the top coaches in world football with the experience of getting clubs to Champions League finals and and in, in one case winning those Champions League finals 
in Pochettino and Jose Mourinho. Both of those managers ended up drawing the same conclusions about the squad, that they're, they no longer had the quality of players to achieve the aims of the club and a, an a aggressive rebuild was required. Yet you see Nuno um, having had a, a window in which Tottenham spent a lot of money um, and, uh, and, and made some quite bold moves in the market, some, some questionable moves, but there was, there was a lot of investment going on and, and the changing of, of some players um, who you wouldn't necessarily expect to, to be allowed to leave the club for nothing. Um, he goes into the Arsenal game and eight of his 11 starters are players who were starters under Pochettino. He's still playing with um, a partnership of Davinson Sanchez and Eric Dyer at centre-back, which has proved problematic for Tottenham on numerous occasions in the past. And on top of that has the, the big problem of the club's most important player for several years now, Harry Kane, performing significantly below his abilities and being unhappy with his position at Tottenham. He didn't want to stay there. He thought he was moving to Manchester City in the summer. Um, he has not recovered the form that, end, that earned him the attentions of Manchester City. And um, Nuno, I think, has, has found it difficult to deal with a squad that, that has made Kane such a fundamental part of it and hasn't had Kane performing at, at the level expected of them. So you've got this accumulation of issues. And now Tottenham are looking to see what the solution to this problem is. And ultimately, the most likely solution to the problem is going to be hiring another new coach um, to try and get them back to where they expect to be in the Premier League and back into Champions League and back earning the kind of revenues that they wanted to earn when they built this billion pound plus stadium. It's become a bit of a shambles really, hasn't it? Um, and, and it does date back to when the stadium build began because it seems that, uh, and Daniel Levy has referred to it, that focus was distracted from the footballing um, project to the construction project. Uh, as you said, they didn't get any of their top targets uh, when it came to replacing Mourinho. Um, but also, um, what I've heard from people close to Tottenham dressing room is that uh, the players are not impressed by Nuno's in-game management. They don't think he's proactive enough when they uh, suffer difficulties uh, in-game. And also, his body language is negative. There's a lot of chat about him. The fact that he stands on the touchline with his arms folded and does not get involved with um, giving out instruction to change things and change it up, that he doesn't make decisions quickly enough. For instance, having lost a very early goal against Arsenal in the North London derby, uh, nothing changed, uh, which... You could say it is normal, except that uh, football head coaches tend to work on a game plan for a whole 
four or five days, depending on whether or not they're playing in Europe. Uh, and uh, obviously, if they then lose an early goal, then they have to have a plan B. And the players have been bickering amongst themselves about there being no plan B. Uh, and therefore, they effectively don't know what they're supposed to be doing in order to remedy things like the loss of an early goal. And of course, another goal comes along and another one in terms of the Arsenal game. And they find themselves 3-0 down at half time in a situation which looks irretrievable. Um, Harry Kane, who is an incredibly influential player amongst his teammates, doesn't look interested. His body language is probably as bad as Nuno's is. Uh, and as you said, Duncan, there's an sort of accumulation of issues here which um, seems to be spiralling downwards with regards to performance and the possibility of them being able to recover it. So the fact that Nuno's future is now being questioned and in doubt is not a surprise. What is difficult, though, Duncan, as you will know, is the lack or at least paucity of obvious candidates to replace Nuno Espirito Santo at um, Tottenham Hotspur because there's just not that many around and the finances at Tottenham are limited with regards to both compensation and bringing in a new coach. It, it just, it seems to me to be a situation in which uh, there are so many problems uh, that are uh, apparent that this is going to be a very difficult situation to extract themselves from. Yeah, I think given what Levy said about hiring a coach before they they put Nuno in place uh, and given the start to the season and the issues around the squad, if they're going to change, there's significant pressure on him and Paratici to get it right this time um, and to provide the supporters with something that they are happy with um, and, and sort of get that, that, that boost of it's a name coming in who we think is going to change um, the club in the direction we want the club to go and start playing the football we um, pride ourselves on playing even if it hasn't won any trophies for um, over a decade. Um, you're right. The obvious big name candidates available are Antonio Conte, who they had conversations with in the summer and who, um, they were not able to convince, um, that they were able to provide him with the resources he needed in order to win the Champions League and be competitive at the top of the Premier League. He was asking for a very substantial salary and he was asking for, um, big money to be spent on transfers. and an agreement could not be come to. Um, and I think Conte has um, other more significant jobs as his target at present. Zindine Zidane is another name who um, is unemployed and available, but can you convince Zidane to swap um, a sabbatical period to go to a club that has the problems that we've detailed? Um, Brendan Rodgers is someone that Daniel Levy has tried for in the past. Um, I think you have information that uh, that he was not interested in the summer and it's 
it may be difficult to see how he, his stance on that would have changed subsequently. And again, perhaps he feels there are there are more storied jobs available to him when the moment comes to to step on from Leicester City. Graham Potter's been mentioned extensively and obviously has had a very good start to the season for Brighton. Um, he kind of fits a profile of coach that Levy has pursued in the past of a, a young up-and-coming individual who's demonstrated his abilities at a lower-end Premier League club um, and is perceived to to play the right way. But can you convince Potter and can you convince Brighton to allow him to go at present? Um, I think there's one name, again, someone they tried for in the summer and who who Paris Saint-Germain blocked leaving, who may be a, a factor here in that Pochettino was unhappy at Paris Saint-Germain and was open to talking to Tottenham in the summer and we are told would have left um, if Paris Saint-Germain hadn't um, made it too expensive for him to go by taking up an option in his contract. He has, at present, at PSG, he's won every game in the league um, so the, the the French title start is as good as it can be, but um, not started well in the Champions League. We'll see how the game goes tonight against Manchester City. Um, he's upset Lionel Messi already uh, by substituting him in a game uh, where a result was on the line. He has an unhappy Kylian Mbappe being held against uh, his wishes at the club and Mbappe and Neymar in a degree of conflict over how they're, they're playing on the field. If the Champions League campaign goes south for Paris Saint-Germain, it's not hard to see that Pochettino is the most likely man to be sacrificed in those circumstances. That's been the history of Qatar in the past when their, their superstar players don't perform on in the tournament where they have spent those billions in order to win it, to become the first uh, nation state club to secure it ahead of Manchester City, then they change the coach. And and given that interest in, in bringing Pochettino back in the summer, it wouldn't surprise me if Tottenham are monitoring that in the hope that it goes badly enough wrong for him at PSG, that he becomes available again, and uh, and they can bring him back because that is the kind of appointment which will go down very well with their supporters. You can see why Pochettino might want to leave FC Hollywood, um, given the dramas that um, seem to be almost a daily occurrence at the Parc des Princes. But going back to Spurs, it, it's a strange one. Uh, it, the dressing room, I, w I wouldn't go as far as to say the dressing room is toxic at Spurs, but clearly given the history of coaches being sacked and player dissent, et cetera, et cetera, Duncan, um, it doesn't seem to be the most attractive job um, despite you know this state-of-the-art stadium and there being some very talented players there. Uh, but if you've got a problem with your star striker, which clearly they have, uh, you've also got um, problems with uh, square pegs, round holes in terms of where players are playing. As you said, the central defensive partnership is far from efficient. It seems to me that any coach going in there um, would ha either have to be extremely self-confident or probably just a bit mad 
to take the job up um, in the current circumstances, whereas maybe three years ago it would have been a very attractive post for, for a lot of coaches. As I said at the top of the pod, this is kind of a manager's special today on the transfer window. And interestingly, uh, our understanding is that the first little bits of grumblings under the surface about Ole Gunnar Solskjaer are starting to emerge in the upper echelons of the old Trafford hierarchy. Uh, The feeling is that he has been given everything that he's asked for and more, but is failing to get the best out of the players he has been furnished with at his request, including Jaden Sancho. He's also uh, failing to get other players playing consistently enough, uh, superstar players that is as well. And by that, I mean Paul Pogba, um, even Bruno Fernandes, who has been outstanding for United since his arrival, does not play in the same way in every game. And uh, even Mason Greenwood and younger players who have shown themselves to have a lot of talent and indeed game-changing talent uh, are not performing on the same level in each game either. And Solskjaer, therefore, may well start to come under pressure. And Duncan, of course, uh, three defeats in the last couple of weeks Two teams that you would expect Manchester United to overcome quite easily um, in three different competitions have shown that perhaps uh, this the the uh, the criticism or the scepticism perhaps is in actual fact accurate and justified. Yeah, look, he he's lost to young boys in the in the Champions League away. Um, just managed to beat West Ham United away from home. West Ham United devoid of their, their best player in Mikel Antonio, certainly their most important forward for that game. Um, then loses to a West Ham reserve team effectively in, in the League Cup, which as we said is his best opportunity to earn, end that over now four-year trophy drought that Manchester United have. Um, and then loses at home again to Aston Villa at the weekend and and again it wasn't a, that wasn't an unfair result um Aston Villa I think you can it's fair to argue outplayed certainly out thought Manchester United for long periods of that game um you can go back to last season uh and it's now seven wins and one clean sheet in the last 16 matches under Ole Gunnar Solskjaer um it's not the form and not the performances you would expect from the squad he's been provided with. As you mentioned, that, that he has been given, I think, as much as he could expect. And I think he's on, on record as, as saying the equivalent in the, in the kind of build-up to um, these games uh, and the excitement of having Cristiano Ronaldo provided for him at, at the end of the transfer window. He can't complain about his resources. He's uh, one of only two coaches ever to be put in charge of a squad that cost over a billion euros in terms of transfer fee commitments. And and it is a repeat process of 
not seeing a coherent system of play to break down opponents, a, a way of building the play um, when things get difficult, uh, a dependence on those prodigious talents he has on the field to produce goals from somewhere, um, set-piece failings which showed themselves again uh, against Aston Villa. Um, not, none of this is really very new about his management of the club. What's different is he now can't complain about the squad um, and there's an expectation that he should be doing better with the, the playing resources that have been provided to him. I don't think it helps his cause when he he goes into a match like the Aston Villa match complaining about not getting penalties. Um, he is correct to say that in the, the West Ham United um, away game, which they won, remember, that they should have had um, more penalties in that match. Um, they probably should have been given two penalties in that game, but they won the game. And Solskjaer then goes into uh, to a press conference um, talking about how Jurgen Klopp, he feels, may have been responsible for Manchester United um, supply of penalties drying up saying that he'd seen a big difference since Klopp had made comments about the number of penalties uh, uh, Manchester United were receiving last season. I mean, statistically, and, and there were some very interesting and detailed stats put out by Opta um, comparing the number of penalties that Klopp's Liverpool have received and Solskjaer's Manchester United re have received. The argument just doesn't hold any water. Uh, Klopp has had 225 games at Liverpool um, in the Premier League before this weekend's matches. Uh, the, his team had produced 7,192 touches in the opposition box in those games compared with 102 games for Solskjaer in the Premier League, 2,641 touches in the box, yet an equal number of 32 penalties awarded to each team. So you can see, and, and like you only have to have watched um, Manchester United's games over um, the last couple of seasons to see that they were getting a, an extravagantly large number of penalties. So, so complaining about that and trying to alter the dynamic of the game, then getting a relatively soft penalty in the match and then uh, failing to convert. And that failure to convert, that decision to allow Bruno Fernandes to take the penalty, I think will have repercussions within the squad. I, I think there's a feeling that, that Solskjaer made a mistake in allowing Fernandes to take that penalty and, and had um, he gone with Ronaldo, um, things might be different for him now. Um, there's that. And then the other comment he made post-match, which was to complain that the defeat to Aston Villa had come down to a, an offside uh, decision that hadn't been given against Ollie Watkins for uh, presumably Solskjaer's argument was that uh, Watkins was interfering with play by preventing David De Gea to, from uh, running to uh, to counter the ball before Courtney Hawes headed it in. Um, look, there is an argument and we've seen some decisions given um, for players interfering with goalkeepers um, by VAR uh, to prevent uh, to cancel goals that have been scored this season, but it's it's clutching at straws and and uh, 
it's not really becoming of a of a Manchester United manager to lose three and four, lose at home to Aston Villa, where, as I say, they they haven't had the better of that game, and to moan that um, that they hadn't got a refereeing decision in their favour when they just had a a, a soft handball to allow them a chance to equalise, and 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 it had been squandered. I wondered if Bruno Fernandes was actually taking a rugby conversion rather than a penalty. Um, the way he struck that ball. Um, probably someone in Rosette was heading it back. Uh, it was quite extraordinary. Well, we, should, we, should, we should say that um, the Aston Villa goalkeeper, Martinez, um, did use just about every tactic available to a goalkeeper in the book to make it as difficult as possible <laughs> for Bruno Fernandes. Including suggesting Cristiano Ronaldo should take the kick. Yeah, yeah, it, yes. Standing and telling Cristiano Ronaldo he should have been taking it, which, you know, I think you've got to credit Martinez with that because he he was he was rubbing at a sore he he knew would be within the within the Manchester United camp and he would have been aware that Bruno Fernandes would be under pressure having been given the penalty ahead of his Portugal international teammate who wants to take penalties and wants to score as many goals as possible. And uh, and and in the same way as Bruno Fernandes is absolutely focused on winning, is absolutely focused on winning. So, um, again, something Solskjaer complained about, saying he didn't like the way uh, Aston Villa uh, surrounded the penalty spot and and uh, argued with players and surrounded the referee before the the kick was taken. But um, a, a certain degree of cleverness in in their tactics on that and and effectiveness in their tactics and uh, again Solskjaer was saying complained about it said it didn't affect Fernandes he realized that he would put Fernandes in a difficult place by complaining about it and then later said oh it did have the impact that we're expecting so even his messaging over that was confused. But in saying that Duncan uh, until that game Fernandes had scored 37 out of his last 39 penalties I mean, you can't really argue with those kind of stats in terms of reliability in those situations. No. Um, you, if you're going to do it on a purely statistical basis, then Bruno Fernandes was the obvious choice to take the penalties. And Bruno Fernandes has been very successful for Manchester United and, and he was the man in possession. Um I think it's a bit like Padraig Harrington in the Ryder Cup. He wanted to make decisions on how you play Ryder Cup matches according to statistics uh, to take the emotion and the psychology out of decision-making. And that wasn't the, the fundamental reason why why America destroyed Europe in uh, the Ryder Cup. But you can go too far with statistics in sport and, and there is an obvious dynamic between Bruno Fernandes and, and Cristiano Ronaldo, something that's played out um, in the Portuguese national team. And you know, Portuguese observers will tell you that Bruno Fernandes hasn't performed consistently at the same level as he did um, when he's playing by himself and not with Cristiano Ronaldo when he's in that national team. So I think you need to take that into consideration when you make that decision over a penalty. And and unfortunately for Solskjaer and Manchester United, the one where that first decision came up was absolutely fundamental because it was 
an added time opportunity to equalise a game where they'd played badly, um, where they were they they'd come in with a with a series of bad results, and it's amplified the pressure on the manager. So yeah, you can make the statistical argument, and you can say the man in possession, but ultimately that decision failed. He didn't score. Uh, Manchester United lost, and you now have these question marks internally about whether they have the right man in charge of the of the billion euro squad. Well, the obvious dynamic um, between Solskjaer and his employers is clearly beginning to crack slightly, despite the fact he has had uh, unquestionable support uh, from the Manchester United board with regards to recruitment and faith put in him, despite the fact no trophies gained in his tenure so far. Another man who was under pressure not so long ago is Mikel Arteta at Arsenal, um, albeit he is different from Solskjaer in that he is a complete rookie as a number one. Um, obviously, Arsenal's start of the season was poor. However, they have now won three games on the bounce and uh, our information is that Arteta took some um, quite dramatic steps with regards to um, remedying uh, the poor form by inviting his whole squad and obviously his senior players and and his players that he relies upon to speak freely in a team meeting um, around two weeks ago uh, to discuss what they thought was going wrong uh, with their performances and indeed Arteta's own performance with regards to tactics, uh, team selection and in-game management and that a clear-the-air type meeting was held and that since then, obviously, results have improved, uh, culminating in that thrashing of Tottenham Hotspur uh, last weekend in the North London derby. Uh, with, in terms of Arteta himself, uh, he clearly... Uh, is someone who uh, is very focused and extremely ambitious as well, uh, wants very much to succeed at Arsenal and is not, certainly not a quitter. Uh, and that has been borne out in the turnaround and fortunes. It's early days, Duncan, but um, it would appear that Arteta has a better chance of surviving than some other managers at Premier League clubs at this moment in time. Look, beating Tottenham 3-1 in that fashion uh, is uh, is a major bonus for Arteta. Um, that builds you a lot of credit with the, with a support uh, who had grown irritated with um, performances over a sustained period of time. I think you're right to say it's early days. Um, they've won 3-0 the match beforehand, but that's a League Cup tie against Wimbledon. Um, marginal victories over Norwich City and Burnley by a single goal. Um, as we've explained in the podcast, Tottenham weren't in a particularly good place going into that match and uh, and the er- early goal and then uh, look a refereeing decision that that, that went in uh, in Arsenal's favour and that there was a foul on um, Hoiberg in the, at the beginning of the build-up to their second goal um, helped 
push the game in, in Arsenal's favour, but he does seem to have more of a coherence to the way he's playing and having had those team meetings and got the players into a place where they respected the opportunity to speak and they respected the opportunity to criticise and provide suggestions on how they can improve matters. Um, you know, we've talked in this podcast about one of the biggest problems that Arteta's had has been handling individual players and the 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 discord that's in that squad, the the dissent there is um, from certain individuals. Um, if he can if he can hold that together and have a buy in from the players, and the players then start getting the rewards of success on the field, yes, it makes life a lot easier for someone who's you know Graham Hunter has pointed out on this podcast, someone who knows Arteta well, um, a very capable technical coach. Um, if you can get the players on side with what he wants to do, then it gives them the opportunity to use that technical ability to actually get results on the field. Duncan, of course, it is the first pod of the week and therefore we will be completing it with our hero and villain section. Um, I'm getting very disappointed because you keep choosing hero where normally you're the villain of the villains, but uh, you've chosen hero again this week. Yeah, um, look, uh, one of the big games of the weekend was was Chelsea, Manchester City. We talked about how there was a lot of pressure on Guardiola to get his his tactical shape right and not to get caught out by Thomas Tuchel and exposed by Thomas Tuchel again. He absolutely did that. Um, he did some interesting things in that um, set up uh, in a way that when they had possession of the ball, Bernardo Silva was was dropping in front of the centre backs and operating in a, a kind of two in central midfield with with Rodri. Um, Bernardo was exceptional um, and received immense praise from Guardiola after the game. Guardiola saying, I never forgot the second Premier League we won. He was the best player in England. Season after, he dropped a little bit. He was not in the position, but now he's back. Um, Again, if he wanted to leave the side, the club that's going to take him will take one of the best players in the world, referring again to Bernardo's request to leave the club in the summer story we broke early on in the in the window and one which which Guardiola confirmed at a, a later stage um I think we saw the, the quality of of player Bernardo can be and how important he is in the Premier League when uh, when he's he's put in a position um to perform and he and he did it in a crucial game at the weekend so I think he deserves to be hero of the week It is odd um, when you think back, Duncan, because we did heap praise as well on um, Bernardo uh, in that second Premier League title season because he clearly was the player Manchester City relied upon more than anyone else. Um, And the fact that he has obviously indicated that he wants to leave, uh, especially given the other departures at City, um, most specifically David Silva, um, seems weird that he wants to go, but of course these I think these are personal reasons rather than necessarily football or sporting reasons. Um, 
but he's still there. The window's closed now, so January, this question will be raised again. Um, my villain of the week is going to be the unknown Celtic striker, Lee Griffiths, and Duncan being a big fan of the Arabs yourself, Dundee United. In fact, that Griffiths is on loan at Dundee. Um, and, of course, he is a villain because a flare was thrown onto the pitch uh, on last weekend's match, and Griffiths kicked the flare, and it went back into the stand. Uh, now, this is villain-type behaviour, mostly because it's an indiscriminate act which could have injured a child or anyone else in that stand um, when he kicked a flare back, not condoning the um, original action of the fans who threw the flare onto the pitch. That's not fair either, but at least it's not being kicked into an area where there are hundreds of people. And as I said, an injury could easily have occurred. So Lee Griffiths is our villain of the week. And uh, we hope that he will uh, learn from that. He certainly has made a fairly solemn apology with regards to um, his actions um, afterwards and said that he had no intention of actually kicking it into the stand. But that's where it ended up. But nonetheless, as I said, uh, there was always that risk and it was indiscriminatory. And so he has to be our villain of the week. Do we know why... um... Liverpool supporters were at the Dundee game and, and why the Manchester City bus was um, running around the touchline. <laughs> I don't know. Can you tell me? <laughs> <laughs> Answers in the postcard, please, or an email to transfer podcast <laughs> if you know the reasons for these things. Um, this has been the news before it becomes news on the first pod of the week. Please engage with us on our social media platforms. We are at Transfer Podcast on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Duncan's at Duncan Castles. I'm at Garbo SJ. Find us on YouTube. It's an easy search. And until later in the week, we will be back. Stay safe, be well, and thanks for listening. <laughs>